Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 91 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending, February 23rd, 2018, the Where Are the Chickens edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and myself take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, including the Supreme Court decision in digital realty, which narrowed the definition of a whistleblower. We look at uh, banks behaving badly yet again uh, in the rabble bank uh, penalty. Bill Coffin hits his third straight home run on his weekly column of Coffin on Compliance at the Compliance Failures at Twitter. Uh, Mara Lamos-Stein takes a look at companies uh, needing to prepare for more robust international investigations and enforcement of anti-corruption laws. We consider Jacqueline Jagger's review of due diligence practices for corporate sponsors in light of the international sporting scandals. We uh, take a look at the rather amazing story of uh, curling and its doping scandal. We consider how you can evaluate an in-house investigation from an article in Corporate Compliance Insights. We review the uh, Harvard Business Review article by Wei Chen and Professor Eugene Soltz, which considers a more analytical approach to testing compliance program effectiveness. We look at Kentucky Fried Chicken, who shut down in the United, United Kingdom because it didn't have any chicken to fry, and use this at, for an exploration of what is risk. Review my week-long series on the intersection of Sherlock Holmes, innovation, and compliance. We talk about everything compliance, episode 25, which is a wrap-up of the panelists' highlights from the first year of compliance under Trump. I highlight a new podcast that I've premiered with Jonathan Armstrong, Countdown to GDPR, which considers what U.S. companies can do to prepare for GDPR on its go-live date. We talk about uh, my new book, which is, of course, The Complete Compliance Handbook. And Jay talks about next week's white collar uh, conference, ABA white collar conference that he's attending in San Diego. It's a fascinating exploration of the week's top, some of the top compliance and ethics stories. This week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with my friend and colleague Jay Rosen for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 91 for the week ending. February 23rd, 2018, the Where Are the Chickens editions. Buck, 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 buck. So, Jay, there we go. Jay, we had actually a pretty interesting week from the compliance and ethics uh, front, so why don't we just jump right into it. The, um, I think probably the biggest story of the week was the Supreme Court decision in Digital Realty versus Summers, in which it narrowed the definition of a whistleblower. This was a case where Mr. Summers had uh, eternally whistleblown to his company and was fired for his trouble. Uh, he brought a retaliation suit under Dodd Frank, claiming that he was uh, Dodd Frank protected internal whistleblowers as well as those who uh, would. Uh, whistleblower to the Securities and Exchange Commission directly. His case, um, uh, he succeeded at both the uh, trial court and uh, court of appeals on that position. And he went to the Supreme Court. There was a split in the Supreme Court or in the circuits with the Fifth Circuit uh, holding Contra and Asada. And then in uh, the Second Circuit uh, held that um, a person who reports internally received Dodd-Frank protection. In a 9-0 decision, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court reversed and held that Mr. Summers did not have a cause of action under Dodd-Frank 
because it defined whistleblowers as individuals who provide information related to a violation of security laws, quote, to the commission, end quote. And by commission, it means the Securities and Exchange Commission. So uh, Mr. Summers uh, basically lost out. Now, there are protections. There are both incentives and protections in Dodd-Frank for whistleblowers. Obviously, everyone is aware of, or hopefully most of our listeners are aware of, the bounty provision for whistleblowers who voluntarily provide information to the SEC, and that leads to a successful enforcement of a covered judicial action can receive a cash award of between 10 to 30 percent of the monetary sanctions collected. Also, in the protections, um, a employer is prohibited from discharging, harassing, or otherwise discriminating against a whistleblower uh, because of a lawful act done by the whistleblower in providing information to the commission, in providing testimony to an ongoing investigation by the commission, and in making disclosures that are required under uh, Sarbanes-Oxley or the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. So uh, I I would say the Supreme Court got the law right. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the implications uh, at the near the the end of the podcast, so we'll save on that. But a pretty important decision and uh, certainly narrowed the the scope of Dodd-Frank protections. Uh, We had yet another example of banks behaving badly. You want to tell us about that, Jay? Sure, and I believe this is a story we uh, touched upon a couple weeks ago, but um, Mike Volkov decided to write about it this week. And um, basically, uh, Rabobank has agreed to pay a fine of $368 million in forfeited funds, and this settlement follows the deferred prosecution agreement with George Martin, a Rabobank manager in Southern California who agreed to cooperate with the ongoing investigation. And basically, the bank um, had laundered hundreds of millions of dollars in untraceable cash from Mexico through its rural bank branches in Imperial County in Southern California. Um, Rabobank has had a long history of having deficient AML compliance, uh, notwithstanding their failure to improve its AML program. The OCC, the Office of Controller and Currency, eventually closed their enforcement action back in 2012. Unfortunately, Rabobank continued to engage in laundering activities. And uh, basically, what happened was at one point, the executive who informed the reporting committee um, on what was happening was told that she would no longer be able to report to executive management and eventually she was placed on lead and fired from the bank. So um, just a, a real mess there, uh, something that had been percolating for a very long time and um, you know it just shows um, again an, another bank behaving badly. Indeed it is. Um Next, um, we had an article by Bill Coffin, the uh, editor-in-chief at Compliance Week. And it was uh, really interesting, Jay, because uh, Bill took a look at the compliance culture at Twitter, of all things. And he certainly has a bug up as something around this. Um, And he is uh, very dissatisfied with how Twitter is focusing on um, hate speech, uh, misinformation, and uh, basically online abuse. 
He talked about a recent article in Vanity Fair, which took a look at the Dell Harvey, the company's head of trust and safety, uh, who is in charge of this. And uh, Bill uh, really believes Twitter has failed at this for several reasons, which he uh, ties to basic compliance issues. The first one I found really the most interesting, because I think this is not something many compliance practitioners think to, but the, uh, the incentives that a company has, but not simply the monetary incentives, but the uh, structural um, construction of the technology. And Bill believes that Twitter's construction upon technology that does not allow for scalable tech solutions to monitoring hate speech and abuse is um, one of the key problems. And that while Twitter recognized the problem. They didn't try to have a technological solution, but just threw bodies at it. And frankly, you can't put enough bodies in to monitor all the hate speech. Hate, hate speech. He also points to a lack of resources and lack of support, which are certainly more common to the compliance practitioners. But I give Bill Coffin kudos. I think it's his third home run in a week. So I told him, uh, keep it up. If you get a home run next week, you get a grand slam. So a uh, great piece by Bill Coffin. Here's my uh, favorite part. He says, even if you factor out criticisms that she might not be skilled enough for her job anymore, or Silicon Valley's equivalent of Ringo Starr benefiting from the right place at the right time syndrome, and you factor in things like slow response time from Harvey's team because they want to make the right decision the first time, it all paints a picture of role and responsibility built to fail. So I just love that Ringo Starr syndrome. Pretty harsh, pretty harsh. Yeah. All you need so is... We have, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, we have another great piece from Compliance Week, our colleague uh, Jacqueline Jaeger, and she talks about due diligence best practices for corporate sponsors, and um, she kind of uses the whole FIFA scandal as a jumping off point, but what she talked about is um, really not only the sponsor... But the endorser, uh, who are sometimes different people, need to protect themselves on both sides of the um, both sides of the fence in doing due diligence. And she talks about that uh, there are instances where you need to have reciprocal protections. So basically, uh, back in February of last year, Under Armour CEO Kevin Plank. Uh, came under fire for praising President Trump, calling him, quote, a real asset to the country, unquote. And that interview quickly sparked a backlash of criticism on social media from several of Under Armour's top endorser athletes, including Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Misty Copeland, and Steph Curry. So um, I think this is something that we don't necessarily think of from uh, when you look at it from the athlete's point of view, it's maybe if they've... Uh, taken steroids or done something wrong where they get into problems and a morals clause. But this, uh, I thought, was a very unique way, way to look at this from the athlete's perspective. If the company does something that uh, defames them, that they have a possibility for redress. And uh, also that they, uh, one of the recommendations in the article is that this shouldn't be limited for a time. So say, you were somehow associated with Miramax, and now you're wrapped in with what the uh, actions are of Harvey Weinstein. 
you know, whether or not that action happened 15 or 20 years ago, that still could give you an opportunity to sever your agreement or redress your uh, position with the company. So uh, Jacqueline's article really talks about how corporate sponsors should also think about what remedies they want to speak, uh, want to seek. And, uh, you know, when a sponsorship goes well, the rewards for the company can be considerable. But when they don't, you really need to have this other planning done ahead of time so uh, you can pursue the proper course of action. Did, uh, did you have any takeaways from the article, Tom? Yeah, I guess um, this is really the first time I had seen the, the term morals clause in a commercial agreement, certainly uh, in a personal services agreement. Uh, and you being in Hollywood may have been <clears throat> subject to something like that at some point. But um, I found it very interesting in the uh, in just the regular old commercial world. But she quoted um, Gonzalo Mon, a partner with Kelly Dry, that the existence of a moral clause in a contract is no longer controversial. We see them all the time. Now, the scope can be uh, uh, open to negotiation or controversial. But uh, I was a little bit surprised to see that. So I think that's something that compliance practitioners are going to have to uh, uh, consider as a tool going forward, that uh, in addition to your FCPA or compliance protections, you may want to have a morals clause in your contract. And if somebody, some corporation does something that is not moral, unethical, as opposed to simply being illegal, you can terminate the contract. Although, as um, the article points out, um, these athletes who were under contract to armor all probably could have pulled out uh, from their agreements with a reciprocal uh, morals clause based upon the statement of uh, CEO Kevin Plank. Great. So now um, keeping with somewhat of an athletic theme, uh, Adam Turtletop, my uh, Encino neighbor and, uh, uh, you know, uh, in charge of all things, um, cool and compliant at the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics uh, has a small piece that made it onto their website called when the sport of curling should make your hair curl. And uh, basically there was a situation where they found out that one of the curlers was uh, doping to get an advantage in curling. And, um, Adam said in the article that for us in compliance, it's yet another reminder that when it comes to competition, whether in sports or in business, some people will always do almost anything they can to get ahead, even if that means cheating, even if no one can figure out why. And then he concludes, he says, you will always need controls to catch wrongdoing because there's no accounting for human thinking. And if you're not prepared you may get blindsided by a horrifically bad decision gliding slowly down the ice right at you with someone sweeping the way clean in front of it. So, uh, Tom, what advantage could possibly be gained by doping in the Canadian sport of curling? Well, first of all, uh, let's make clear it was the Russians who were doping. And now we've had our second instance of Russians doping in the bobsled, I believe. So it may speak more to the endemic nature of uh, corruption uh, and unethical behavior in the not Russian, but Russian people's uh, Olympic team. So this may keep the Russians out of the next Olympics uh, as well. Uh, you know, all, all I could say is when I read this was WTF. 
who the WTF needs to take steroids to do curling. Uh, those Canadians have been winning curling uh, medal, gold medals since it started, and uh, I don't think any of those guys had anything other than a good Molson um, beer. So uh, that was my or response. Labatt's bleu. <laughs> or Labatt's Uh WTF. Having said that, America is in the curling finals tonight, having bested the Canadians in the semifinals. So perhaps they'll have to up their game next time. But, uh, yeah, just WTF. And I should just note, with a title – when should the cur- sport of curling? Uh, when the sport of curling should make your hair curl? Uh, please don't look at the picture of Adam Turtletob and wonder WTF on hair curling. All right, Tom. Uh, how about our next piece? We're going to take a look at um, how can you evaluate in-house investigations. So this yeah, comes this from a, corporate a really, compliance insights. Sorry. A really interesting uh, piece by a fellow named. Sundar Narayanan in Corporate Compliance Insights. If you don't subscribe to this site, it is one of the uh, just top uh, sources and resources for all news GRC. And it's uh, put on by uh, Maurice Gilbert uh, from Concilium and run by Sarah Haddon. And uh, it's it's all free. It's a fabulous resource site. So check it out. Uh, We will have the link in the show notes. But the author takes a look at or proposes five ways for you to <clears throat> think about how effective and efficient is your internal uh, investigation, in-house, in-house investigation process. And he talks about monitoring the case trends within your organization, measure the timelines of case closure, review the process of handling whistleblower concerns to improve efficiency. We'll certainly touch on that in our, our more lengthy discussion of digital realty. Four, gather whistleblower feedback. Five, measure trends of actions on the basis of concerns received. Six, measure the effectiveness of claims management for fraud losses. And seven, conduct benchmarking marking studies on your investigation process. These are all straightforward, Jay, but they're uh, really good pointers and um, gives you a way to self-assess, I think, your in-house program. Uh, Jay, before we go to uh, Colonel... Uh, Harlan Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken. I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, Mara Lemos Stein at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report. She wrote a uh, short piece entitled Compliance Needs to Adapt as Prosecutors Cooperate More. And certainly the uh, internationalization of both investigations and enforcement is something that has been, uh, you and I have talked about at some length over the past year or so. And uh, people talk about the Department of Justice, and uh, last week we even talked about an article uh, where it uh, tried to argue for uh, uh, international double jeopardy and international recognition of other countries' enforcement actions. But uh, Mars piece really takes it from the corporate angle, and she talks about how corporations need to respond to this. So uh, it's important that... Um, Chief compliance officers and general counsels are not only aware of this, but are factoring this into their uh, decision-making calculus around self-disclosure, around investigations, uh, and a wide variety of other areas. So kudos for Mara for making us uh, take a look at it from the corporate perspective as opposed from the enforcer or legal perspective. Great. So um, I think 
What we were going to go to number eight now, or did you want to go to KFC? Nope, we can go to number eight. Okay, so uh, I don't know how we we tackle this. I'll give you my um, my initial thoughts, and I think you could probably unpack it a bit more. But uh, Wei Chen and Professor Eugene Soltis at Harvard have put together a really great uh, piece taking a more analytical look at approach to how do you uh, test your compliance program's effectiveness. And in this lengthy article, they talk about how in the past there's been certain indicia that they've looked at to try to uh, quantify whether or not um, an ethics and compliance uh, program is effective. And if you look at the um, <clears throat> the Morgan Stanley case with Giles Peterson, he was messaged something like 33 different times and took training, but unfortunately there was no deterrent effect there. So they argue that maybe right now people are using the uh, wrong data points to assess the effectiveness of an ethics and compliance program and that there is a better, more scientific way to really uh, figure out what is the best way to um, adjudicate your ethics and compliance uh, system and your code of conduct. So with that as a jumping off point, Tom, uh, do you want to unpack that a bit more? Well, uh, they really focus, as you suggest, Jay, on the, the compliance metrics they believe have gone astray a little bit. They believe that incorrect and invalid metrics are being used. Um, they believe that <clears throat> companies are mistaking legal accountability for compliance uh, effectiveness and self-reporting and self-selection bias is going on. And they suggest some uh, methods and mechanisms to overcome this. Uh, it really is uh, forces you to take a look at, or I guess, consider things from a quantitative perspective. Uh, they suggest regression analysis to determine whether your hotline is effective and whether your training is effective. So those are fairly sophisticated data analytics techniques that uh, lawyers are typically not trained on. So it's it's going to require a mind shift for those of us who came to the compliance profession from the general counsel's chair or from the legal function of a corporate compliance officer uh, position. And uh, they really talk about linking compliance initiatives to overall corporate objectives and then uh, trying to measure against those. And like I said, they uh, suggest several mechanisms, but when you start talking about re rec um, regression analysis, that's a really a bridge too far for most lawyers. So it's going to take a while, I think, for the profession to catch up to this. Nevertheless, um, they talk about compliance engineering and really in a way that I think is important. It's important for the discussion going forward. It's certainly important for operationalizing your compliance program, and it's going to allow uh, or force, rather, I think companies to be much more analytical, I think it will make compliance more operationalized and more efficient, and at the end of the day, it will make your company uh, more uh, profitable. So, uh, hardly recommend and commend the article. It's going to be out in the uh, March-April issue of the Harvard Business Review. That's the hardcover, but it's available online now, and we've linked to it. Unfortunately, you have to subscribe to the magazine to, to read it, but uh, if you can uh, get a copy, uh, I would suggest uh, that you do so, because it's well worth it. Okay, so with uh, we're gonna we're gonna go to the colonel, and then we'll talk more about the Supreme Court.
Sure. So um, this is just as a Southerner, I'm just, just, <laughs> oh, I'm beyond any position on this. And here's the situation, Jay. It, KFC, which of course is Kentucky Fried Chicken, in England failed to deliver chicken to its fried chicken restaurants to fry up for customers. And how did this happen? It happened because they changed the supplier for the chicken. Now, the contract was signed about six months ago. They've known about this. It went live this past Monday, and they have yet to put chicken in the restaurants. And as a good Southerner, fried chicken is fried chicken, and we, we fried chicken all we can. But apparently in England, they take it to a whole different level because there was such an outrage and outroar over this by the English fried chicken consuming public that police were called fried chicken fried chicken police were called and even members of parliament were contacted by their constituents uh, all around this uh, really inane supply chain issue um, and it got worse because the uh, lead su- supplier DHL blamed uh, a chicken supplier down the ru- down the line And then uh, KFC jumped in from the corporate perspective and said, well, what do you expect? It's hard to supply chicken to 900 restaurants in a big old country like England, conveniently forgetting that they had done so for the past 50 years, apparently without this hiccup. For the compliance practitioner, Jay, there is a lesson, though, and that lesson is, what are your risks? Well, I would suggest to you if your name at least used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken, even if it's now KFC, your biggest risk is you don't have chicken to fry. And that means you've got to have a supply chain, you have to have a reputable supply chain, you have to have a flowing supply chain, and you have to have a backup in case they don't deliver. So the message to compliance is assess what your risk is. And if you are in a situation where Fried chicken is in your name or was in your name. You better not run out of chicken, or at least you better have some to sell before you run out. So, um, interesting uh, event in England. So, um, this week, what have you been doing on your other podcasts? So, um, this week, well, let's talk about um, the digital realty case first. Okay. So um, that's the Supreme Court case. And here's really where I wanted to maybe explore this with you a little bit, Jay, because now we have a situation where if an employee wants to report a uh, nefarious act that may rise to the level of securities violation and wants protection for that report, they can no longer go to their employer. They have to go to the SEC. So um, actually, I I did a podcast with Roy Snell on this this morning that I'm going to post next week. And Roy is completely excised over this. And Roy pointed to three, uh, I think, three uh, problems that will come up. One is that uh, the SEC may be overwhelmed now because uh, many employees uh, report things in good faith that they believe are violations. And it turns out they're not violations. They're relatively small or they're not a securities law violation. Um, And that's something that a robust internal whistleblower triage program and follow-up can help uh, not only determine, but then actually work with the employee to help them understand why this is not a violation. Uh, And so now the 
employee doesn't have that option. He's got to go to the SEC if he wants protection. Number two, from the company's perspective, if they want, uh, obviously, a compliance function is prevent, detect, and remediate. Well, part of the way you prevent or, or you detect is through the whistleblower program. And if you're not getting that information, uh, you can't then remediate it. And you don't get that information if the employee has to now go to the Securities and Exchange Commission. So um, a very important and valid source of, of uh, information may no longer be available in-house. And then finally, from the company's perspective, if someone now files a claim with the Securities and Exchange Commission, they are now bulletproof. They can't be fired for any reason. Um, they, um, um, uh, they're just protected. And the company wouldn't know it because they haven't self-disclosed internally or rather you know, whistleblown internally. So you have a company that terminates someone and the employee says, well, you know, I filed this thing with the uh, SEC three months ago. You can't terminate me. You know, I guess you have. So now I'm going to sue the dog meat out of you. So um, I really see some some pretty significant problems here. Um, the One of the commentators uh, from uh, Sam Rubenfeld's article, excuse me, Henry Cutter's article today, said that the um, uh, remedy was to uh, have Congress uh, fix it. That's certainly theoretically an option, but that would require this Congress to actually do something, which... Um, you know, they've shown an inability to do almost anything. And for uh, companies, it's really a matter of be careful what you wish for because you may get it. And they've they've cut back on whistleblower protection, but it's really not going to, uh, I think, help companies move forward. Uh, Son McCasey was quoted in the article. He, of course, was the uh, first chief of the SEC whistleblower's office, said that America, corporate America has litigated itself uh, into uh, a box. And companies who want to do whatever they can to spot problems internally, they may have to tackle problems um, that the SEC brings to them. And the problem there, Jay, is if a company does not self-disclose to the SEC, uh, they don't get that credit. And if you if you have an employee who whistleblows to the SEC only, it doesn't give you the chance to either remediate it or make an assessment to self-disclose. So um, lots of uh, lots of tricky issues here. And uh, uh, having said all of that, and this was a 9-0 Supreme Court decision. I think it was absolute 110% correct legal decision. Uh, the impact, though, I think is going to be uh, very negative for corporate America, for corporate compliance programs, and even for the SEC. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know... Um to your point, how you start figuring this out, especially with a dysfunctional le legislative branch, and uh, you're not going to be able to solve this with an executive order either. So um, I guess the curious thing is how um, how come this wasn't caught earlier, you know, because this action came out of or this protection came out of Dodd-Frank. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, so it's uh, it certainly disincentivizes um, the company from trying to fix things internally, and not not only are they disincentivized, but they're going to be potentially left out of the loop, as you said, because to get the protection, the whistleblowers need to go directly to the SEC, and that precludes them from detecting and then remediating. So, uh, interesting thing to see unfold in the coming year. Right. So the um, okay. 
Actually, uh, what I wanted to just highlight, Jay, was a, not a podcast series I did this week, but a blog post series where I explored the intersection of Sherlock Holmes innovation and compliance in a series of uh, blog posts on digital strategies, using digital twin data interpretation, interpreting data in the digital future and compliance. So um, it was a lot of fun. I love obviously writing about Sherlock Holmes, but uh, the future of compliance, innovation and compliance is something uh, that greatly interests me. Um, you are part of this week's podcast uh, series, Jay, though, because uh, Everything Compliance uh, was back for episode 25, where you guys, uh, yourself, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, and Jonathan Armstrong, took a look at uh, the highlights of uh, the first year of compliance under the Trump administration. So we've, we've uh, linked to that, but it uh, came out yesterday. Uh, Everything Compliance, episode 25. Uh, check it out if you haven't heard it. Also, I premiered a new podcast with our colleague Jonathan Armstrong on Countdown to uh, GDPR. It uh, will be a podcast series which considers what U.S. companies can do to prepare for the GDPR go live date of May 25, 2018. Um, I, of course, uh, still in pre-sale mode for my book. And if you uh, want to check out more information on it, you can take a look at my uh, website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. You'll see it right there on the front page. I've got a link to more information. And if you'd like a, a pre-sale copy, uh, please feel free to, to link through. Jay, there's a, a pretty interesting and I think important co annual conference uh, next week that you're going to be attending for multiple, uh, multiple time, if that's a word. Uh, why don't you tell us about it? Sure. So it's uh, whenever it's the end of February, beginning of March, it's time for the annual ABA National Institute on White Collar Crime. Uh, this year, the group is getting together for their 32nd time. And uh, basically one year they are in Southern California in San Diego. And then the following year they are in Miami Beach at the Fontainebleau. So we're back to San Diego and um the list of attendees uh, and uh, delegates keeps growing. Last year, they had about 1,200 people, and they're expecting to have at least that, if not more. And uh, the conference will start uh, Tuesday evening with a reception, and it'll run till um, Friday midday. And uh, they're going to have three significant uh, plenary panels uh, on the morning of March 1st. The keynote speaker will be David Green, who is the director of the UK's Serious Fraud Office, and um, he is almost uh, getting ready to move on to his next uh, widely anticipated role. So he's going to be speaking to the conference, and normally this is a lunchtime slot. Uh, and in the past, uh, I've seen Sally Yates speak and, and people from the government. So uh, th this is very interesting to have somebody from the SFO there. Um, we're also going to have the assistant attorney general for the criminal division uh, who will explore ethical issues that confront all attorneys when entering the United States and protecting their attorney client privilege and work material from prying eyes of U.S. border officials. And uh, generally, it's a real uh, interesting cross-section of practitioners from the white-collar bar, uh, some folks who have an FCPA background, some folks who have more of a white-collar crime background. And, um, you know, the, the group is known for having lots of uh, 
options to network and socialize in the evening. So I'm uh, doing something very un-LA, and I'm taking the train down from Union Station to Santa Fe Station in San Diego, and then I'll be there for the conference and train back up. So uh, hopefully when we speak next Friday or Saturday, I'll be able to um, share some updates and um, some new ideas and what uh, – ensued over the uh, three and a half days in San Diego. Well, we look forward to that. I know it's a great conference. Uh, I'm going to actually interview John Hansen, uh, the president of IAICM, uh, next week before he heads out and uh, get that up because I know he's a big fan of that conference as well. So uh, with all that, Jay, you want to take us home this week? Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, We'd like to thank you for spending uh, this week with us for This Week in FCPA, Episode 91, the chicken or the fried chicken edition. So uh, with that, let's have a a group cluck and we can walk our way out. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to our podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word about out about the only weekly podcast wrap up of all things compliance and ethics. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we will explore the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.